You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show for lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction. Join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley and Darcy Fournier. Lara France is a Christie Award winner and the ECPA best-selling author of 15 novels, including The Rose and the Thistle, The Frontiersman's Daughter, Courting Morrow Little, The Lacemaker, and A Heart Adrift. She is the proud mom of an American soldier and a career firefighter. Though she will always call Kentucky home, Lara lives with her husband in Washington State. Lara France, welcome back to the Historical Bookworm Show. Oh, you're one of my favorite podcasts, so it's a joy to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. We had you on for, I believe it was The Rose and the Thistle last time, and we just had a ball. So We did. In fact, I just went back and uh, listened to that a wee bit. (laughs) So it was fun. Thanks again. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to talking about this book as well, The Seamstress of Acadie. But of course, before we get into that, we have a few fun questions. You live in Washington State now which is known as the Evergreen State, and Kentucky is known as the Bluegrass State. So after living in these two different places, what do you love best about each one? Oh, my goodness. I think I love, I've come to appreciate being in the Northwest and living in and by a national park. We live at the Gateway of Olympic National Park. So oh, wow. I, yeah, it's the beauty is incredible. I mean, we're just a mile from the beach, you know, the mountains are in our backyard. We have these glacial lakes. So it's just incredible. We, you know, live on 10 acres out literally in the, in the woods, in the wilderness and um, it quite remote. We, it had a a battle even getting, getting internet a few years ago and our internet provider just dropped us. So we had to get another one. So it's very sketchy. Uh, There's no cell service at the end of our road. So that tells you a little something. So I, it's the ideal place for an author to write books. And I see that that's not an accident. Now, as far as my home state, Kentucky, I miss, I miss so many things. The heat. I miss you know, our log cabin that we, you know, let go before the pandemic. I miss Cracker Barrel. So <laughs> I try to get back there, you know, pretty, pretty regularly. Not, not as often as I'd like because of my schedule, but very different places, very different cultures. Absolutely. Uh, the South, yeah, the South is a very different culture than the, than the Pacific Northwest. The you know they people even speak differently, obviously, and they eat differently, and they celebrate and enjoy different things. So it's really a study in contrast. But like you said, I love how you phrase that. You know what positive spin. You know what what do you like about it? What's you know the very vast differences. Yeah, there usually is something to like. Like you say, in your new home, you are very secluded, which yeah, sounds absolutely ideal for writing. I could stand for like a week of no cell service. That that sounds good. But yeah, like you say, the Southern culture, especially if you grow up with it, you know, it's just so warm and lovely and the food is amazing. So yeah, I have to come back and visit for sure. Oh, definitely. I'm headed back in uh, March, so I can't wait. Oh, nice. Yes. And by March, Kentucky should be um, uh, having decent weather probably. And yeah, it'd be great. Right. Hopefully, you know, I might be there. I'm going to do the end of March there. So it's dogwoods blooming, maybe red buds. So that is a very special time to me. And uh, hopefully I'll get to enjoy a little bit of that. Only it's a quick trip, just about a week. 
Yes, so hopefully you will land right on the blossoms. So in the Pacific Northwest, um, Kylie is from there. And so she understands about those long, rainy winter days. So how do you spend your time? Well, you know, no two days look the same. You know, some authors have a schedule that works for them. Mine, every day looks different. I do social media usually in the morning and answer emails. And then I try to to leave blocks of time for writing. And because, you know, that's my main priority. I would love to get to the point where I, I think I have an, I have one author friend who just does social media on Fridays. I can't imagine, but it's wise maybe to, you know, put it in a box, but I can't do that. Cause you know, you hop around to different socials, you know, Instagram and I have a new Facebook group called gorgeous Georgians and have to be pretty present over there. And then when you launch a book, you have to be very present or should be because social media, you know, it does help spread the word and you want to meet as many new readers as you can while continuing to embrace your older readers, so to speak, who have been with you. And I have had some wonderful readers who've been with me from the first novel, believe it or not. So, (laughs) so with my faithful readers, I love dearly. And so it's just no two days look the same. And the writing life is never boring for that reason. You know, there's constant challenges, constant people popping up in your inbox, lots of invitations and people wanting endorsements and different things. So no two days look the same for a creative person. I guess that is a kind of a delight. Exactly. It keeps you from getting in a rut. Right. No ruts here. (laughs) Although I do wish I had more writing time, but I mean, that's something I just, I think every author's battle. Yes, yes. I, I think some of us uh, would rather we didn't have to sleep, you know, if we could just cut out sleeping yes, and replace exactly. that with writing, you know, it just an eighth day of the week. You know, yes, yes, exactly. Day. Purely for writing. No, no distractions, no dishes, no nothing. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, as writers are always readers first, what have you been reading lately that you have enjoyed? You know, I'm reading some books on the frontier. I'm actually reading the Zane Grey novel. And oh, also, nice. Yes, I've gone back to Zane Grey because he, despite being kind of old school now and very dated in some of his stereotyping of different things, he he just wrote the frontier so well. So I'm three chapters into a new frontier novel that'll release in conjunction with our nation's 250th birthday, uh-huh. our Declaration of Independence in 2026. So I'm reading Gouge still. I'm on a never-ending Elizabeth Gouge is like my favorite writer, right up there with Lucy Maud Montgomery and George MacDonald. So I read a lot of the old school authors, as I say, that are no longer with us because of that archaic language. I love to keep that alive in my mind and um, use some of that. And then I read a lot of nonfiction. I read more nonfiction than anything. Really? Yeah, because I, you know, I'm constantly researching. So non, yeah, nonfiction is like king for me. I can't, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not reading nonfiction. So when you're a historical writer, that's just part of it. And I know historical writers that don't like research, but I'm, I love research. Ah, see, that makes that makes that part of your job so much easier when you love it, right? There you go, Darcy. You have to really love it. Otherwise, I think, why write it? I can't imagine research being hard as a historical fiction author. It's, it's like candy to me. 
So I have a hard time turning it off. The stories that you run across in research can be so interesting. Like for me, even I love to go to old cemeteries. We have a couple of beautiful ones here in St. Augustine. And just looking at the dates sometimes and tracing family names, you see little stories like, you know, someone lost a child or someone lost three children in a row. But then you see that they did have one child who lived and you can tell by the dates, you know, where they fell in the birth order and stuff. And just little like that that you can see there's there's so much there's richness everywhere yeah inspiration for story all over the place it is my in fact my husband was talking about florida history yesterday and was it was so interesting and because you have a lot of history and it's kind of untapped history it is because growing up in looking at American history, you are taught it from the point of view of the British. So everything starts with the Mayflower. And that's, of course, because the British influence eventually brought about the country that we have today. But in Florida, it was heavily settled by the Spanish first. And it was even still occupied by the Spanish, you know, long after the colonies had seceded. Right. So it's it's been cool moving down here and starting to explore this whole branch of American history that I didn't really know existed. So it's it, it now you need to write it. I know now. Now I've got to. Now I've got to try my hand at writing a story. There. You do. I think if you're in the setting, you just can write from kind of a, a place of, you know, authenticity that you don't have normally. It's just really amazing. And you like that untapped Florida history is incredible. Yeah, just it's so much. Lots fun. of story fodder right in the graveyards, like you were saying. Lots of you know, you find names that have been there forever, mm-hmm. families, the generations. Lots of, and most of my historical fiction comes from an idea and research. Yeah, something you run across that you know didn't think of otherwise. It just won't let you go, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, is there anything else especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you'd like to share with us, or perhaps something God has laid on your heart that you'd like to share with your readers? Oh my goodness! Well, I'm stepping out in faith. This marks a new journey for me, uh, writing and publishing wise. I'm just signed a new contract. I believe it was December with my wonderful publisher of. 15 novels now, Ravel, Baker Publishing Group. And there I'm suddenly able to bring readers two books a year. So yeah, that's a leap of faith for me. Now this is, um, I should, I don't like the word experiment because experiment means kind of, yes, you don't know what you're doing, but it is an experiment. So I'm the novel, I'll be writing novellas. So I'll be bringing, hopefully if this goes as I hope, please readers pray that um, I'm finishing up the novella now that will be released the end of July of this year. And that is from a character, a secondary character in The Rose and the Thistle. Oh! Yes, one of my human ancestors grows up and gets his own love story. And so it's like a novella. It's going to be Laura France Light. Or, you know, a, a novella is you can't do the historical depth or... Right, not quite as much. There's just not room for it. Mm-hmm. Right, and there's not, you know, as intricate a plot because you're only dealing with 200 or so pages or maybe less than that. Right. So it's really half a book. But, you know, I don't know if readers will like that. It's kind of like the snack before the full historical feast, you know, of the year, you know. Exactly, a little bit of it. dessert, you know. You read the <laughs> yeah, rest of the whistle, now yeah. you need dessert. It's a dessert for you in July while you're waiting for the January full-length historical. So I'm not a fast writer, but this has come together pretty fast. And so I'm 
on tap for bringing readers two books a year, a novella every July, and then a full-length historical. Uh, the novella will be my my work, not Ravel's, and then a full-length historical from Ravel for the next few years, if if it goes well. So that's, please pray for me, readers, because I I want to bring you, you've been asking me for more than one book a year, and and so after 15 novels now, I've given it a, quite a bit of thought and asked the Lord, you know, close and open doors and seems to be giving me the green light. And I just hope that it goes, you know, well, and is what readers want and can enjoy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always the thing these days, you know, you're so busy sometimes that it can be hard to commit to a full novel. At least for me, it can be. So I've definitely developed an appreciation for novellas and short novels. So. Oh, that's good to hear. Right. It's just, they have a place. They can be delightful, but there's a totally different kind of delightful than a full length. Exactly. Exactly. Completely different uh, medium, so to right. speak. Readers and I just, I think, need to adjust our expectations perhaps and just embrace maybe what, what this story brings. I think it's a delightful story. <laughs> so oh, good. Hopefully. Well, <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I'll share a cover with you in a little bit. And a title coming up in a couple months, maybe. All right. That's awesome. So we'll have still be getting the full length novels, but also a little something extra. So, you know, if people prefer the novels, they can just wait a whole year and they'll be exactly. fine. Exactly. If a novella is not your thing, I totally understand. I don't read a lot of novellas myself, but I have actually in the last year because I've been entertaining this idea and thinking, you know, can I, can this be done? Can it be done well? Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to give it all I've got. And the Lord seems to have opened that door. All right. Thank you for asking. You're the first person I think I've shared this with. Oh, we get the scoop. That's so exciting. The, the real scoop. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking more about The Seamstress of Acadie, your latest release. The back cover copy says, Gifted seamstress Sylvie Gallant and her Acadian family desire to live peacefully and remain neutral in the upcoming war between the French and the English, but the proximity of their land on Acadie's rugged shores makes them an easy target. While tensions escalate, Sylvie encounters Major William Blackburn. Although he is a British army ranger, Blackburn warns her that the British are poised to invade, but the warning cannot counteract the plans or stop the tide of English soldiers. William Blackburn has seen firsthand the atrocities that the British have done to the Acadian families and their villages. Rather than participate in the Hannes expulsion, Will resigns his commission before a charge of treason is brought against him. When Sylvie is forcibly removed from her homeland, she finds herself on a ramshackle ship headed to Virginia, where she crosses paths once again with Will. Together, they must work through the complex tangle of their shared, shattered past to navigate the present and forge an enduring future. Oh, thank you for reading. Sometimes I'm asked to give a summation and it's like, well, the back cover copy says it all. <laughs> right. It's like they they wrote a great summation right there on the back cover. They did. And sometimes if you're an introverted novelist like I am, it's hard to cough up after you spend a year and a half with a book to condense it. So thank you for reading that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. If you'd wanted to write it in, you know, three paragraphs, you would have, you know. Novella practice, right? <laughs> right, always. <laughs> so we have a British army ranger and a seamstress in a war-ravaged land who are cast into an even more perilous situation headed for America. So this sounds like quite an adventure and an opportunity for some really strong romance. So what inspired this story? 
Good question. I have a French ancestress in my genealogy, genealogy that actually came from France, married a an Englishman and went in, into Virginia and then eventually settled in Kentucky. So I've always been intrigued by her. Comes up on my DNA as I'm be, as I'm part French, which I find fascinating. So even, you know, a couple 300 years later, she's still she's still a part of me. And so I thought, oh, I'd love to have a French heroine, but I didn't feel, uh, you know, qualified to write a lot of that history. And this was a leap of faith for me. The Seamstress of Acadie opens in Nova Scotia, which was then called Acadie. And I'm not Canadian. I'm not French. I'm not Cajun. A lot of the Acadians went down and settled in Louisiana and became Cajuns. And I didn't want to touch that history because I don't know much about it. I mean, I've been very aware that of the Cajuns and their culture, but I, you know, have I visited Louisiana? No. Um, you know, I don't know a lot about French history. I am a student of the French Revolution. But anyway, so this was a leap of faith to take a French woman and make her a heroine in probably one of the most hidden episodes of history that, that it, there is. Not in, in America, anyway. Um, I, in, in England, I don't think they know any more about it, even though they were the perpetrators of the expulsion against the Acadians. So I'm hearing from readers that, oh, we didn't even know this history existed. Right. I'm also hearing from Acadian readers who say the Acadian expulsion by the British is still being taught in our schools in Canada and also in Louisiana, perhaps. So that's good to know, if only to ever prevent a recurrence of any of that horrendous history in any form. And um, so it was a leap of faith. You know, I didn't feel qualified to write it, but I gave it my best. And you're obviously approaching it with a great deal of honor and respect for the story. And so it's it's good that you're bringing this to light because like you say, yet yeah, people don't know about that as much. I feel like we are talking about American history and the way it starts with the American Revolution almost or the, the settling at Mayflower. So this whole, the British and the French are fighting and yeah, that affected the colonies, but that's not really as interesting as the American Revolution. So we don't, we don't know right. any of these details and like what actually happened on our continent so much. We just, we just exactly. kind of skim over it. And you bring up an excellent point. Our history is told from the British perspective many times. I mean, it be eventually became an American history lesson. But they left Florida and other parts of it out of completely because we learn it from the lens that controlled it. And that was the British for, for so for, you know, for so many hundreds of years. And then we became achieved our independence and we started, we took control of the narrative, so to speak. But, the, you know, it just depends on your perspective, your point of view and looking at history. And it, I remember studying in England and I went to school there for a time and I don't remember a lot, but I remember studying the American Revolution from the British perspective. It was very different, vastly different than what in American universities. So, of course, you know, it's just fascinating. History is fascinating. And, you know, do we ever really know what happened back then? The most we can do is research and guess. The past really is like a foreign country, as, as has been said. It is, isn't it? Yeah. 
I think we're brave as historical fiction novelists. You know, if you don't want to fill our novels with anachronisms and all the contemporary stuff, if we're trying to be true to that time period, you know, it's it's quite a, a, a courageous endeavor to write historical fiction, I think. And we live in a very sensitive climate now, you know, understandably with minorities and, and uh, you know, marginalized people groups and mm-hmm. you know it's it's a fine fine line you, you try not to cross while still being true to history it's it's a hard task it is it's it's actually quite a challenge it is and i i if you're if you're good at it i think you can achieve a somewhat realistic you know you bring readers open a door to the past but it's very difficult and without the lord's help i don't know how anybody does it Oh, absolutely. Yeah. To really give it the respect it deserves. Yeah. He's the author of our creativity and we need to bring him into the process because it's his process and his story. And I think that's the blessing and the, for Christian authors is that we have the Lord in in our work. And that just makes all the difference. Absolutely. Oh, glad you brought that up. Absolutely. So it, you mentioned briefly that Acadie is the name for what the land we now know as Nova Scotia. So what was the historical significance of that location? Right. Well, Acadie was just in, an incredible land, and that's why it was so fiercely fought over by the British and the French. And it's just hard to, to even give you a vision in a nutshell, though I tried to do it justice in the book. So you have this land that's being fought over. And you have the Acadian people that are trying to remain neutral in the middle of it. And it was a land unsurpassed. It was a very fertile land. There were huge apple orchards. There were big fields of grain. There were, they, the Acadians had harnessed the dikes, you know, these waterways, and they had uh, turned it into this lush, lush land. And they had herds of cattle. I mean, they also had a very low prevalence of disease. For colonial America, that just was like the most pristine conditions. They they weren't ravaged by smallpox and different different diseases. They also got along with their Indian neighbors. They lived in harmony with them. They intermarried. They they respected them. They learned from them. It was kind of a peaceful coexistence. It wasn't like our mindset coming over on the Mayflower that we're going to divide and conquer. It was the Acadians didn't have that. And so, you know, sadly, because they were neutral, they were at risk. They were peaceful people. They were at risk of exploitation. And, but it's such a tragedy that what happened to them did happen to them. You can imagine the wrench from this beautiful land. Sure, it had its hardships and its you know, there were some negatives there, I'm sure, but I haven't uncovered many. But you can imagine when if you were expelled from generations of living there, what that would have done to you. Half the Acadians expelled died. Thousands and thousands of people died. It was horrific. I got a chance to visit um, Cape Breton, which is the northern island of Nova Scotia. And it was so beautiful, just stunningly beautiful. And beautiful fiddling tradition, lots of music that have come from there that's just outstanding. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. That's it's it's sad that it has such a tragic history, but Right. The islands especially, like you and you were there firsthand. It's just hard to describe. And I think, you know, the land, the culture and the people have changed, but I think, you know, the land 
of course it's changed, you know, it's been modernized, but I mean, those rugged, those epic, you know, cliffs and just the beaches and the forest and the mountains, that is pretty much what it was. And it, it's today, you know, you're not going to see a lot of difference except, you know, we're dealing with cities and towns now where there had been little villages and just farms before. Right. But that's cool that 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 little place gets a chance to kind of shine in this story. Although they also are traveling down to Virginia, which I think it's cool the way the characters' paths cross for a second time. So concerning the romantic thread, what's special about Sylvie and William? Well, it's interesting because for, you know, historical fireworks, you have to pit a soldier pretty much against a, an Acadian woman, uh, I can't, I tried to spin it a different way. You know, you know, you need protagonists that are pitted against each other in this novel. I guess it would be uh, enemies to lovers, but there's not a lot more that I could have done there. I didn't think. Um, and it's been done before. I, in my author note, I give readers a look at other books that have tackled Acadian history so that if they want to read further, but as far as Sylvie and Will, my favorite scene in the novel is when they meet by the well. And it's her family's little courtyard, which is quite uh, picturesque, or I could see it so clearly in my mind as I brought him onto the scene. And she's by the well, and he actually spills milk on her wooden shoes. Acadians wore wooden shoes, suppose, and, you know, very much part of their their dress and their culture. And she thinks he's someone he's not, which I found, and he plays along. And so it's, I think it's an, an interesting, intriguing little meeting. And they're just vastly different. They come onto the scene. They're from different lands. They speak a different language. He actually speaks fluent French. And, you know, he's a frontiersman and she's this lovely Acadian young woman who in its instant attraction is happens so often. I don't believe in love at first sight. I believe in physical attraction at first sight. <laughs> of course. You can't argue against that. No, you can't. I mean who's to explain it? You know, you're you can be physically attracted at first sight. It happens all the time. And that was one of my books. I have different meat cutes as they're called in different books, but this one was definitely the spark was flaming at first meeting. So in the worst way, because they really shouldn't have um, paired up, but they did as the novel they did. continues, right? Uh, well, at least with that kind of foundation, if they make it, you know that they're going to be a good, strong couple with whatever life throws at them, because if they made it together in the first place, right? <laughs> they're going to continue on do or die. And uh, it looks like you're getting a chance to dive into some uh, moral dilemmas and things like that as well. So I, I think this will be a book that readers will enjoy on multiple levels. I hope so. It's getting, it's been welcomed warmly. And I was concerned about that because it's very harsh history and how to put hope the Lord must, you know, helped me with that. How to how to coat that with hope? That heartbreaking history is very difficult, um, and I felt that struggle as I wrote the novel. But it's in the hardest situations that God gets a chance to show up if we let right. Him. So I love that. The light shines brightest in the darkness, and hopefully, you know, our circumstances, personally, or our the fiction we read, you know, shines that that light. 
Exactly. So you mentioned briefly that after this releases, hopefully we're looking at a novella with these characters as well. So eventually next year, but what's the next novel you're looking at? Well, I just turned in every year when a not, when a book releases to readers, I turn in a novel and it goes a year in the publishing pipeline. And so I just, when The Seamstress of Acadie released in, this month, I turned in a Scottish novel that actually is partly set in colonial Virginia and then is partly set in Scotland. So I loved it. You take an, an American heiress basically in the 18th century and she's paired with a, a Scottish tobacco lord, they were called. They were in, I don't want to give away too much, but it's an interesting pairing. It's very historically based. And I had a ball writing it. So I think, I hope readers enjoy it as much as I did. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Bringing in some of the Scottish characters from... From, from Glasgow this time. Oh, neat. Yeah, and I love Glasgow. I've been there and just has a real artsy vibe and... And so as far as cover art, cover art has begun. And I just um, heard the official title, but I'm going to wait and save that title till the cover is revealed. In exactly. Got to give the official reveal all yeah, together. Give, so, yeah, get a little more packs, a little more punch if you surprise, wait and surprise, I think. Exactly. So listeners can be on the lookout for that. Yes, I'm excited. Of course, the seamstress of Acadie needs its moment to shine as well. So for our listeners, Laura is offering a copy of this novel to enter the giveaway. You can just go to historicalbookworm.com and check out our giveaways page, or you can scroll down to the link that will be in the show notes for this episode. Great. I'm looking forward to sharing Acadie with you on the page. Absolutely. And where can our listeners connect more with you if they're not already following you? I send out a seasonal newsletter. So if you go to my website, larafrance.net, and you scroll halfway down the homepage, you'll see a sign up. All you have to do is put your email address in there. And I really work hard on my newsletters. I don't, you know, I send them out about four times a year seasonally and give you a lot of glimpses behind the scene and what I'm up to and family life and different things that I don't share on my social media as much. So I'd love to have you follow along by my newsletter. And then I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, have a new group called Gorgeous Georgians on Facebook. If you'd like to join that private group, we celebrate American history and things like that. So. Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. Yes. And I love readers, love interacting with readers and get constant endless inspiration from readers. So thank you. That's awesome. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to reading this story and I'm sure that readers are going to enjoy it. So thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Darcy. It's been wonderful. Next time. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.